We talk about exchange life counseling, it's pretty significant to talk about what we mean by the exchange. I remember when my wife Glenda and I came to Tennessee back in 1996 and uh, went through the week of the, of the workshop in school, one of the things that was not really clear in my mind uh, was the process of the exchange, of appropriation. We've heard many of Dr. Solomon's uh, stories, whether they be in Handbook to Happiness or, or in his lectures, and uh, most of them are so sensational, but that's probably why he, he remembers them and shares them, because they're so vivid in terms of the power of what the Holy Spirit has done in people's lives. But when um, we just share the sensational stories of 42 years of, of ministry, we can get the impression that it has to be sensational or it hasn't happened. Uh, or we may think, well, could you back, could you rewind a little bit and say, <laughs> how did that happen? Yeah. Um, and so we know that Sulphur's Prayer is a tool, but I just thought it would be helpful for us to ask the question, what do we mean by this exchange? What does it mean to go from uh, what we would describe here as the self-life? This person would be typical of uh, the uh, believer who is living out of his own resources, so there's self in the center. This, he's born again. However, he's not come to the full surrender and uh, discovery of Christ as his life, so the, the effects of rejection and the frustrations of life's problems, the hostility expressed or suppressed is there, as uh, we're familiar with in our, in our training. And we talk about the Christ life as the result of that exchange. This person has surrendered, <coughs> Um, he has appropriated by faith his identification with Christ, and we expect restoration in mind, will, and emotions, and healthier body and better relationships, as we've just been hearing, is being in order to do. Watch Monique call it the normal Christian life. Watch Monique came to this exchange in his life in China um, over 50 years ago. Hudson Taylor came to this experience after about 15 years in China. And you have uh, his testimony in the appendix of your notebook where he uh, writes back to his letter in Eng his uh, sister in England, writes a letter to her. That was before text messaging. And he describes this spiritual breakthrough of, of uh, it going from head to heart. And so he used that term exchange. So what do we mean by the exchange? What is the nature of this exchange? We know it centers on identification where God shows us that we've been taken out of Adam's lineage and grafted into Christ's eternal life. Now Christ is our representative. He's paid for all of our sins. He has credited to us His righteousness. This spiritual union of His eternal life and our spirit has made us a new creation. Old things have passed away. Our, our condemnation, our guilt, that old identity which was based upon our life experiences, has passed away. All things have become new. New eternal life, new identity, new freedom from sin, like we heard yesterday from, from Bill Berenkamp, uh, new resurrection power, new authority, all kinds of wonderful new things. And so God uses that truth to bring transformational change. And I think for many of us, when we hear um, testimonies of these spiritual breakthroughs, especially in the counseling process, it's very exciting to see the before and after, especially when we show that this exchange is not only good devotional truth, but it's good counseling truth. It's not only uh, in Scripture, but it's in life, 
and we need to ask the question, what is the nature of this exchange? Now, yesterday when we talked about distinctives, we said that whatever accounting approach we use, there's going to be a message and a methodology. Remember that? So the message is, what's the problem? What kind of problem is it? And what is the answer? And how do we, how do we appropriate that answer? Well, if we believe that exchange life counseling or Christ-centered counseling is God's best um, for people to experience the abundant life and to resolve their conflicts and problems, we need to ask about this message and notice that there are different views on, let's call it Galatians 2.20, because many would not use this term exchange life, but we'll say contrasting views on Galatians 2.20. And on page 1 of tab 8, I would say that this first view would be the majority view among evangelicals, and I'll call it positional identification. Now, by positional, we mean that this is how God sees us, that it, it's not so much something that has changed inside a person as much as a person standing before God. Now, this is partially correct, uh, but it's especially, um, how do I put this? It's familiar to us because that's what justification means, right? In Romans 5, verse 1, where it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Justification is that act of God whereby He totally pardons you and gives you the righteousness of Christ as a gift, and that is positional. However, when it comes to sanctification, being set apart for God, it's more than just positional. It's experiential, right? We are a new creation. That's not just... How God sees us is what he's done in us. Sure. See the difference? Sure. So, yes, it is positional, but notice in your notes that people who see it only as positional have no real choice if they're dichotomous, if they believe that soul and spirit are the same thing, because as one prominent biblical counselor told Dr. Solomon, there's nothing in man that was crucified, nothing in man that was raised. And Chuck asked him then, what... what Part of a person has been born again. He says, the whole person. And Chuck, you know, he doesn't back down from a uh, vigorous discussion. He said, I had the same problem with that as Nicodemus had. You know, going back in the mother's womb, I mean, your body wasn't born again. So uh, the dichotomous who just looks at position, um, when you start to pin them down on specifics, start to get off as, as that example of the whole person has been born again. Obviously, our body hasn't been born again until we get a new one. Right. So, also, they would say that sanctification is progressive. And again, we would agree that in your mind, will, and emotions, it's a, it's a process, it's a pilgrim's progress, as John Bunyan would put it, as we grow more and more in Christ-likeness. Yes, we agree. However, if there's no soul-spirit distinction, then they don't acknowledge that in your spirit, you've already been made holy. Uh, if you turn with me in Ephesians chapter 4, we have one of the verses that talk about the old, old man, is the literal phrase here. And in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, I'll begin at verse 20. Paul writes in Ephesians 4, verse 20, But you have not so learned Christ. Um, he goes on to say in verse 21, If indeed you have heard of him and been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man, 
which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, I'd like to address a couple things in this, this passage, but first of all, notice that when it describes the new man, it says the new person was created in true righteousness and holiness. You see that? So we believe that's talking about your human spirit, that God recreated your spirit. And when Paul talks about being a new creation, he's talking not about your body or your soul, but he's talking about your spirit, the new man. Now, the reason that many equate flesh and old man, we talked about this a bit yesterday, is because of the wording of verse 22. When Paul says, put off concerning your former conduct, the old man, it sounds like the old man is still here, but we have to put him off. Now notice in this context, Paul is using old man um, as a figure of speech. And he's saying, put off the conduct of the old man, is what he's saying. It's a figure of speech where the part is used for the whole. So he's not talking about the, whole man, the old man in terms of your spiritual life, because the two other places it's used, which would be Romans 6.6, 6, says you have been, the old man has been crucified, past tense, so you were in Adam. You go over to Colossians 3.9. It's all in your notes from your workshop and all. Colossians 3.9, you have put off, past tense, the old man. So when you're talking about uh, your spiritual condition, God has changed that. And we get a clue to that in verse 24 when it says, the new man has been created in righteousness and holiness. Now hang in there with me. So here Paul is talking about the behavior associated with the old man. And the more precise word for that elsewhere is the flesh. The flesh is the conduct associated with the old man. Imagine if uh, um, we've heard talk about biker gangs and things, okay? So let's say a person was part of a biker gang and, and he had you know, the leathers and you know, the Hells Angels emblem on the back and all. Imagine he's saved, he leaves that, that biker gang, however, the leathers are still in the closet at home, okay? So just out of notoriety, he keeps them in the closet. Well, he's no longer a hell's angel, he's a heaven's angel, and uh, he's a, he's a born-again believer. But if, if he chose to go in and put on that, those old leathers, he would be putting on conduct associated with the old man. He's no longer the, that person. But if he put, it up, put on that wardrobe, that would be what Paul is warning us not to do. He's saying, put off, notice the phrase, um, put off concerning your former conduct. He's talking about the behavior patterns. So put off the conduct associated with the old man because that's not who you are any longer. But because of the way that's phrased, many people think that we're simultaneously old and new, and that's where you get the familiar terminology of old nature, new nature, and thinking we're half good and half bad. But see, the same problem with that view is the viewpoint where people believe that God and Satan are co-equal, which is called in the philosophy dualism. Remember Star Wars? You know about the light, what is it, the, the force and the dark side? So that's really the view of dualism where you've got light and darkness battling against each other and you're not sure who's going to win. That's not, not biblical, is it? God is sovereign. He is holy. He is the true and living God. Satan is a fallen angel and there's no contest between uh, 
God and Satan. So there, there's no dualism. Yes, there is opposition to the kingdom of God. We don't fully understand why God allows the degree of opposition that, that Satan uh, does. We see that in the book of Job. But we know that Satan is a defeated foe, and we pray um, for God's kingdom to come uh, and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray uh, that that day of the full scope of that kingdom will come, of course, when Christ returns, and especially after the millennium. All that to say this, the average uh, theology out there really has a dualistic view of old nature, new nature, because they don't see the soul-spirit distinction. Are you with me? So if there's no soul-spirit distinction, somehow you have to say the governing disposition of the heart is made holy, according to a theologian, is a dichotomous, and yet we're totally depraved, so we're sinning all the time, but we're, and so it gets really kind of confusing. So no wonder the victorious life is elusive, you know, in in um, the typical pulpit. So they would say that uh, sanctification is only progressive; that there's no experiential cross in Romans six six. It's all just the way God sees you. It's just a doctrine. Okay, that's that's mainstream. Now, what we believe and what you've been hearing in the conference and the workshop, which we believe is biblical, and I hope that uh, you see that, that in Scripture, that it's not only positional identification, but it's spiritual as well as legal and positional identification. And that's where the line diagram is so helpful. God takes us out of Adam, puts us into Christ. Whoever is joined to the Lord is one spirit with Him. So in the innermost part of you at the spirit level, you are a new creation. You have a new past. That's where the, the other dimensions of what um, your new identity means all flows from that, that discovery. Romans 6, you know, verse uh, 6, knowing this. So it's so important to know and discover. We believe in the, the body, soul, spirit model. Hebrews 4.12 the Word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even to dividing asunder of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The Scripture shows us the difference between soul and spirit. The old man in Adam actually died with Christ, not just positionally, but who you were was really canceled at Calvary. The new man is raised and ascended with him. Page 2. The new man is already sanctified, um, we're, we're still in Ephesians. If you turn over to chapter 5, look with me at chapter 5, verse 8. Chapter 5 of Ephesians, verse 8. For you were once, what? Darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. That's talking about your spiritual life. You are light. Not you should be, you are. That's what God did in your spirit. So therefore, what's our responsibility? Walk as children of light. Your identity, your spiritual nature, your light. You're not pretending to be, you really are. It's not just positional, it's actual. But in your mind, will, and emotions, in your soul, let that show up. Like the castle track, remember? The new you is in the throne room, Jesus is there. We have to open the door of fellowship and let him look through us. It's as simple and profound as that. So we are light in the Lord, walk as children of light. Okay? So... Let me just mention a third um, viewpoint. I'm, I'm not keeping up with my PowerPoint here. Um, 
The third is what I'll call total identification. Some of you may have come across writing by a man named Norman Grubb, um, and he um, taught the exchange site very clearly. However, he wrote a, a number of books, and when he got into the 1960s and following, he went from the, the way of teaching it uh, that we would recommend, and he started to teach what uh, is sometimes called total truth. And uh, it's the same as what we're teaching here, except if you look at the, the bottom four points, they believe that those who are, un, who are unsaved are spiritually joined to Satan. That's how they put it. Now, we would believe that a person who is lost is in Satan's family in the sense that they're under his domain and they're alienated from God like Satan is, but they take it a step further and they say that, this is the way they put it, they say that there's no independent self. If someone's unsaved, he's spiritually joined to Satan, and if someone is saved, he's spiritually joined to the Holy Spirit. So you're never just a regular person. And again, we agree with them uh, to a certain point, we agree in the first three points in your outline here, but when they talk about spiritually joined to Satan, my problem with that is that Satan is an angel, and he's not like a cosmic spirit where someone is joined to him. So I'm not in agreement with that point. And secondly, they say there's no independent self. And so basically, if you remember our diagram about um, body, soul, and spirit, the pie-shaped diagram, they'll identify self really with the spirit. So remember we talk about the center of the circle as your functional source of life. They kind of shift that over into the spirit realm and they say that your spirit is yourself. And so they say that, that you're not independent. You are actually, uh, your, your union with Christ is who you are in the sense that there's no independent self. And... Another way they say it is that you are Christ in Greg form. You are Christ in Valerie form. You are Christ in Tony form. And to me, they're overstating it. They're not just talking about an exchange life. They're talking about a replaced life. Are you tracking with me here? So they're not just talking about being baptized into his life. They're talking about being submerged and eclipsed by his life. And so appropriation is essentially a faith issue of realizing that you are Christ in your form. Does that sound excessive to you? I hope it does, because I, I think they're overstating the case. Now, the um, statement is making uh, Satan equal, equal with Christ. That's like saying Satan is omnipresent. Exactly. That, uh, um, you know, it's A, it's a or B. Or so I think they're overstating the unsaved condition of being spiritually joined to Satan, and I think they're overstating our spiritual union, identifying your spirit with self and not realizing that in your soul, your mind, will, and emotion, uh, that you have personhood that's distinct from God and that you either can let him live his life through you as an act of your independent will, right? We have a choice to make whether we deny ourselves and take up the cross and follow him. Where the focus of this literature is, it's all about realizing that you're Christ in your form. See, it's a little bit more of a theological philosophy than more of what we're advocating as, as real New Testament teaching. So um, I'm not saying that to confuse anybody, but if you come across that literature, I just want you to be aware that it sounds much like what we're teaching. Uh, Walter Litzman in Texas is along this line. Uh, um, Zerubbabel Press in North Carolina. Again, they, 
they teach what they would call the exchange life, but I would call it really a replaced life. They take it a little bit further than we would advocate here. Brother John. Sometimes I'll quote where Martin Luther, I think, in his writings, he said, so it was as if it were that we each be, uh, become as a little Christ on earth or something to that effect. Are you familiar with that phrase that's sometimes quoted? And what are you saying about the quote? Well, is that what, was that Martin Luther's position? I'm not familiar with that, unless he's alluding to 1 John where it says all of us have received an anointing of the Holy One, and the word Christ means anointed one. So we've all been anointed by the Holy Spirit. Um, but certainly we're going to acknowledge that Christ, uh, as the Son of God, is uniquely divine. Yes. And in some mysterious sense, we are part of his body, and, and those metaphors, vine and branch, and yet there's a distinction, right? That's what really we're, we're clarifying here. So just be aware that there are these different views on Galatians 2.20. There's the mainstream view that says it's just positional, and they actually get suspicious of you talking about a spiritual breakthrough. Um, There's what we're advocating in the Association of Exchange Life Ministries, and what I'll call the devotional heritage. Uh, Oswald Chambers, how many of you have read My Utmost for His Highest? Uh, and people respect that, but again, they'll say, well, that's devotional truth, and they don't realize it's <laughs> also counseling truth. But uh, Oswald Chambers, Andrea Murray... Ian Thomas, Ruth Paxson, Hannah Whithall Smith, Christian Secret of a Happy Life, um, the Keswick uh, authors in England, um, Roy Hessian, wrote Calvary Road, and the list goes on. You'll see a list of recommended reading in the back of your book. So there's a body of devotional literature, and we believe it's simply New Testament uh, teaching, and uh, Watchman Nee and so forth. Uh, but we're saying that God has used Dr. Solomon to take that message of the abundant life and integrated into a short-term strategic counseling process. And aren't you glad that God has led him to do that and that we can, we can uh, learn and, and develop that and see how God wants to use it in our life and ministries. So let me then talk about the timing of the exchange. There's a song I heard that uh, um, talks about salvation. And in the song, she talks about, have you made the exchange? And is talking about salvation. And it's true that when we receive Christ as Savior, um, God exchanges our spiritual deadness for His spiritual life. He exchanges our condemnation for being justified. So we, we could describe that there is an exchange that happens when we're born again. But we're saying something beyond that when it comes to counseling. Because remember our two initial diagrams, the self-life and the Christ-life? We're saying that the typical counselee is born again and yet self is in the center, we're using exchange life as the Christ-centered diagram. They need to exchange the self-life, uh, the old identity, to the Christ-centered life where they're living out of their new identity. So in other words, although some may talk about an exchange and salvation, we're talking about what God wants to do in the life of the born-again person, which very often, if not most of the time, has not been experienced unless they've been discipled you know, into New Testament revelation of the book of Romans and, and Ephesians and Colossians and so forth. So we're using the exchange life as the need to appropriate that by faith. As you remember what we talked about from Romans 6, no 
reckon, yield, remember that? Set your mind on the truth, focus on that, and then walk it out. So it's crossing the Jordan. So we're saying that some will just talk about the exchange as, okay, you're out of Egypt. Okay, that's true. We exchanged slavery from being free people. That, there was an exchange. But we're not just talking about initially, we're talking about crossing the Jordan in terms of our experience of the Christian life. You with me? So we're talking about this, not only that we might have life, yes, there was an exchange to give us life, but as John 10.10 says, and that you might have it, what? More abundantly. We're talking about that aspect of it, appropriating that fullness through surrender and trust in Him. Okay? We've talked about the nature of the exchange in terms of what we mean by Galatians 2.20 and the fact that there's, as Bill said yesterday, an already but a not yet. Um, it's the fact that we're out of Adam into Christ, but most people have not had their funeral. Remember, we use that terminology. Okay, so then as I um, went back to Canada from our trip to Tennessee back in 1996, and I was saying, Lord... Uh, I need I need clarity, I need illumination on how we cross the Jordan so I can help others cross and I can make sure that I've crossed. Um, and in some cases, as we hear these counseling stories, as I mentioned earlier, we may think it has to be sensational and it has to be a crisis experience. Well, Chuck himself says that for some folks, everything that happens pretty much is a crisis. Um, but it doesn't have to always be that way. It was for him. And I believe that um, with that crisis experience, God used that clarity to motivate him to develop the counseling process so others could experience that radical uh, breakthrough that he did. But for some of us in this room, it's been more of a gradual discovery where it's like it says in Proverbs, the path of the just is like a shining light that shines brighter and brighter till the fullness of day. So it's like... Um, I was in Indonesia uh, in 1985 hearing this missionary talk about his breakthrough. And it's like, you know, the light, another light bulb came on. And then hearing uh, a Cabernet teacher from England in Montreal teaching about how just as, as Christ raised Lazarus from the dead, so if we're in Christ, we have resurrection life in us. It's like, okay, another light went on, right? Mm -hmm. And then Handbook to Happiness. And I was taught in seminary just body, soul. And then I see body, soul, spirit and what that identification means spiritually another light went on right and then the humility of yielding to the lord we we were in in ontario and halfway through the pastor about five years into it i just had a, this burden from the lord that i needed to go beyond management to leadership and we were in a very traditional church but we didn't have small groups and a number of things that i felt were not fully god's uh, best for the church and so as we started to implement small groups let me put it this way. Um, has anyone here experienced this phenomenon that people don't really like change? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 So even though it was something as simple as small groups, it's like we started going, then all of a sudden, it's kind of like getting your suspenders caught, you know, whoa. Yeah. You know? <clears throat> and so we, we had this kind of, you know, bumpy road as we talked about small groups and things, and and for the first time in the ministry, it got some rejection. Have you ever heard that word before? <laughs> and as I experienced that rejection and had you know, negative comments made by some people in the church to me, uh, it really was discouraging. 
But God used that time uh, to help me to die a deeper death and uh, have the truth drop from head to heart uh, more than it had been. So another, another uh, dimension of light dawned on my heart. And around the time also we went to Grace Fellowship. So it's not always um, a, a crisis experience. It can be uh, a series of, of, of these kind of discoveries. So um, I believe it's helpful to look at uh, through our understanding of how God works in people's lives and our understanding of Scripture, um, five points I'd like for you to look at with me. And I was preparing a Bible study for Calvary Baptist Church in Manhattan, New York, which is known for teaching this message, and I was asking God to give me clarity on how I can talk about what we have seen in counseling as to the process of people crossing the Jordan. And these five principles became clear in my mind and uh, as I reflected back on what I've seen God do in counseling on my own journey, think about this with me on page three. The first aspect of appropriation is we need to be convicted of our flesh. Do you remember the purpose of taking a history in spiritual therapy? is to help someone get in touch with their version of the flesh, right? To connect the dots that it's not just their circumstances or their past or, or their symptoms, but it's the fact that self is the main problem. So we need to be convicted of our version of the flesh. Mikey mentioned uh, using that page from our conference and workshop notebook about manifestations of the flesh, and they use it as like an intake form. Check off what you're having a problem with, and that's, that would be a, a good way to sensitize people. So just as an unsaved person needs to be convicted of his sin, so the Christian needs to be convicted of his or her flesh, our natural tendencies, our old identity, if you remember the chart from the workshop about the, the circle with the cross through it, there are about seven, seven different facets of the self-life that I look for in terms of uh, taking the person's history. Their natural identity, remember that? Uh, their old ways of coping, the rejection and, and the emotional impact of that. And it ends up with that last one was control, wanting to stay in control. Let it be. Be broken of self-will, self-sufficiency, and pride. In the workshop, remember when Lee was talking to Kurt about brokenness, about a horse being broken of its independence so it can become useful? So we're not talking about being intentionally hurt by God or ruined by God. We're talking about our independence being broken. And in in John 12, 24 is where the Lord says, unless a corn of wheat fall into the ground and dies, it abides alone. But if that seed is planted, what happens? It's going to die to itself, but multiplied life is going to come. So Watchman Nee has a book called Release of the Spirit, which you can find online, public domain, uh, The Release of the Spirit. And he talks about the husk of that seed. And he said, just like when the seed is planted, the husk dissolves and breaks away, then the life principle springs up and multiplies. So he says in the same way, if you think of the concentric circles I used yesterday about the body being outermost, remember that? And then the soul and the spirit in the center. So the soul, kind of like the husk of the spirit, has those independent, fleshly, unbelieving tendencies. And what has to happen? We have to die, quote unquote, in terms of letting go 
And as God plants us into this funeral experience, what happens? As we radically deny our selfish independence, then what happens? Christ in you is released. The seed uh, germinates and is expressed. 2 Corinthians 4, 10 and 11 simply describes this, where it says, always caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, there's the husk dissolving, that the what? That the life of Christ might be manifested in our mortal flesh. So the husk is the selfish independence. God wants to break that away. Why? Not to hurt you, but to unleash your potential of Christ living his life through you. Amen? So we need to be broken of self-will, self-sufficiency, and pride. We talked about good flesh, good in quotes, and performance-based work. Um, Greg was pointing out that the frustration factor may be something that will uh, resonate with someone who may have the, in Chuck's words, Sunday go to meet in flesh, you know, where they're, they're uh, trying to do it in their own strength, even though it looks good on the outside. But there needs to be a conviction. Um, and Paul described his conviction of discovering that God's strength is made, is made perfect in our what? In our weakness. Letter C, a third, a third item that I've seen in counseling and in my own life is the need to learn the truths of identification with Christ. Just like if you're sharing the gospel with an unsafe person, they need to learn the good news. Amen? Go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Matthew 16. I'm sorry, Mark 16. Our Lord tells us. And so if this is the gospel for the believer, we need to share this good news with believers. And the line diagram is a great tool where that can be expressed. So we are not separate from Christ. We've been united with Him in spirit. He's the vine and we're the branches. The old man, and we need to define our terms here, was crucified and buried with Christ. The new man has been raised in, with Christ and seated with Him. That's the essence of this good news of identification that most people have not understood. Sometimes because of the Bible translations, like NIV talking about sinful nature, and there's a lot of good qualities of the NIV, but when it comes to specific New Testament doctrine, uh, we need to be as precise as we can be. And some of the traditional terminology, which is not recognizing the soul-spirit distinction. So sometimes we need to just bring clarity, which the line diagram can do. Um, again, in the dramatized counseling session, Lee mentioned uh, to Ron that sometimes people haven't entered in because they've never heard of it, right? They haven't understood the good news that, that they're no longer in Adam, they're in Christ and what that means. They've not been taught about the cross for the believer. They've, they've heard so much about the cross of Christ for us, but almost nothing about our co-death with him and what that means. So letter C, learn the truths of identification with Christ. Present the good news of our identification with him. The letter D, the Holy Spirit needs to illumine us, right? In John chapter 16, um, you can turn there with me if you like, John 16, verse 12. Our Lord here, just before he went to the cross, he's reassuring the disciples about how he would, he would be departing from them soon, but he would send the Holy Spirit. John 16, verse 12. I still have many things to say to you. Now I'll just pause and say that includes the whole exchange life teaching, okay? But you cannot bear them now. However, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into what? All truth. 
he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come, such as in the book of Revelation. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. He will illumine you. If you uh, wanted to read your Bible at midnight, but there was no lights on, you'd have a hard time, right? <laughs> you couldn't see the, see the page. In the same way, the Holy Spirit wants to illumine our spirit. Remember, in your spirit, you have the faculty of intuition. He wants to illumine your spirit so you understand the meaning and the significance and the implications of the Word. Isn't it amazing when you've read a scripture you've read before, and then this time the light comes on and you think, whoa, I never saw that before. Why? He's disclosing more and more of what His truth can mean in your life and mine. So, we believe that as we share the message of the cross and the life of the believer, we are praying for the Holy Spirit to illumine the counselee to have that, aha, the paradigm shift, okay? Uh, that shift of perspective. And Chuck mentioned one fellow who had the, the, uh, the heart rate was really high and he, you know, he was on medication and he heard the message and he was learning it, but it was a, a while later at night when he was in bed that his heart rate dropped from racing to the normal level and he, he woke his wife <coughs> call the hospital what am i going to tell him that your heart rate is normal <laughs> you know but it's like it took a while for his body to catch up and, and relax um, and that's also true in terms of the light coming on that's why it's helpful to uh, assign homework and in the back of your the last tab in your manual you'll see a homework page there a prescription of asking the person to read Romans 6, 7, and 8, Galatians, General Electric Power Company, uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and look for in Christ, in Him, Christ in you. And as they are sensitized to this message, the Holy Spirit starts to just lift the words off the page and impact their heart. And it's so neat to see that that can happen during the session or it might happen before they, you know, as they're reading the Word or listening to some CDs you give them, and we trust the Holy Spirit to turn on the light that they truly are one with Christ and, and uh, have been co-crucified and co-raised with Him. And then finally, the need to appropriate Christ as life by faith. There's a man named Bruce who uh, years ago sent in a very unusual letter to Dr. Solomon. And he started writing out all of his woes and his background. And he got done with one page and he taped the next page to it. And it was all about the rejection he'd experienced. And at the end, and this was about eight sheets long after he was done, wow. and the last sheet he wrote, H-E-L-P, exclamation mark, help. <laughs> and Chuck opened it kind of, you know, it all kind of like an accordion came open, you know, as he looked at this list of the man's uh, woes. Well, he came to, for counseling at a conference and... God was bringing the pieces together for Bruce, but yet he couldn't quite appropriate it. And, and uh, we're going to hear about that tomorrow morning as he talks about the issue of hindrances. And then uh, another GFI person was teaching, and Bruce was in the back kind of saying, oh, I've learned so much, but how do I appropriate this? And God just nudged Dr. Solomon to say, it's just by faith. He said, it's by faith? And then the light went on. It's by faith. And he jumped around and, and God led him into victory. And now he's written many books. Uh, uh, Bruce Carter's name is. 
um, and God has used him to, uh, to lead, lead many into the message of identification. Um, if you use the Egypt wilderness Canaan analogy, it's like someone who's on the edge of the Jordan River and they see Canaan there and they hear that, that God has promised to lead them through, but they're waiting for the river to part. But see, that's not God's arrangement. Yes, God parted the Red Sea when Moses lifted up the, the rod of God, but when it came to uh, entering in to Canaan, symbolizing the abundant life, what had to happen? They had to step in. The priests carrying the ark had to step in, and as they stepped in, then God stopped the river up at a town called Adam, and everyone else could walk through. So friends, some people are standing on the edge of the Jordan, and they're waiting for their feelings to line up. Or they're waiting for, for, the, for God to zap them or something else. And God says, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in Him. It is by faith. And the selfish prayer is simply a guided prayer uh, that expresses surrender and faith in this way. And so uh, it is by faith. Aren't you glad? And that's the victory that overcomes the world, namely our faith. My concluding comments, we're not saying that, that everyone is really uh, aware of these exact steps, but as disciples, as, as uh, biblical counselors, I hope that by having these steps clarified in our own understanding, it'll help us lead people across the Jordan more effectively. I hope so. Um, I also wanted to mention there, however, that some are living in Canaan intuitively, they haven't fully understood Romans 6, or they may have never seen the line diagram, which is just a tool. And yet you look at their life, and it's obvious that Christ is living through them. Well, they are intuitively surrendering and trusting Christ to live through them, and God honors that response, whether the theology is fully there or not. And if you recall Dr. Salma's testimony, his Sunday school teacher was walking in victory. But for years, Chuck was suffering tremendously because the Sunday school teacher didn't know how to help him. Yeah. It was true in his life. The Sunday school teacher, um, name was John, uh, who, who wrote a book that we're just republishing. Um, it was true in his life, but he didn't know how to help Dr. Solomon. So we're saying that through our, our ministry training, by understanding how God works in the biblical basis, we're able to not only intuitively live it, but help others experience it and communicate it, just like uh, sharing the gospel. Some may read the gospel of John and, and get saved, but they're not really sure how to share the gospel with someone else. How much better to understand how the Bible clearly teaches the way of salvation and how to share the gospel, and with that clarity, to share the gospel more effectively. I hope that this lesson has helped us clarify how to lead someone into the abundant life and how God uh, works that process in our own individual journey.